Yeah, that's right. We could, yeah, we could definitely use the sound effect. We could, like, I could get the, so. Hmm. Uh, um, uh, come on, start. Yeah, here we go. Oops. Uh, shit. Oops. That's an update from the Tigers SRD desk. As Jonathan Scope signs a one-year deal for $4.5 million. To make room for him on the roster, Travis Demerit was designated for assignment. So that was the breaking news that happened as we we're talking to Eno Zaris. And that was a it was funny because we were we were kind of like freestyling for like 15 minutes, kind of not going anywhere. You know, called and we got that taken care of. But then, as literally as we just started the interview, all of a sudden, there were Jonathan Scope signs for less value than they did last year. So, 4.5. Yeah, that's that's a a good indication of the first of all, it's a good signing. I think uh, I'm not upset with about it at all. Uh, the Scope is kind of he's a limited player in some regards. Uh, we t- talked about it a lot. He, he's it's a very BABIP-driven uh, profile. You know, he doesn't walk very much. He doesn't strike out a ton either. So basically, how valuable he is is based on, uh, you know, how how many of his balls in play fall for hits. He does hit the ball hard, and he's going to hit some home runs. Uh, so yeah, I mean, it's nice. It it, uh, it does address. I think their second to last need. I still think they need one more arm in the rotation, but. Uh, yeah, but it does. It, it 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 it's an indication of what's happening to the the middle class in baseball, if you will. That uh, you know, we saw Trevor Bauer still got a, a billion dollars in a deal, you know, forty million dollars a year. Uh, but these middling players, I mean, Scope had a good year, and he's young, and he's getting less this year than he got last last year. It doesn't seem fair for somebody like that, but uh, that's the way it is. And so the Tigers got a pretty good deal there, so I can't be upset about it. And uh, I suppose it means likely means that Paredes is, is heading to AAA, which I think he could use. Or, I don't know what it means for Nico Goodrum and Willie Castro. Or, I think that Sco- here's the thing. If they don't, I think they're going to put Candelario at first, mm-hmm. start Paredes at third. If they don't sign a first baseman. No, yeah, you're right. I, I don't, uh, that's very possible. Uh, or uh, who knows? Maybe we see Scope or Goodrum at first or third. Maybe they throw Goodrum at third. I mean, he's got the arm. Uh, he just hasn't played well there. I don't know. I, I mean, they'll have some options. Uh, and, yeah, Demerit, he had – it'll be interesting to see if he's another guy who gets – it wouldn't shock me if he gets claimed either. He's uh, He's got some tools. He didn't get a ton of chances with Detroit. He played a fair amount down the stretch in 2019, but very little last year. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and I, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't think they're missing out on a lot. I don't, I don't expect them to be a regular, but there there could be some fourth outfielder there for some team that, that might want them. So, but uh, yeah, I, I'm not that I not that I'm rooting for John Schreiber to get cut, but I'm I'm continually surprised by how often or how many times he's he's uh, made the cut, if you will. Hasn't been the guy DFA'd, just because I feel like I mean, it's a sort of a unique uh, pitching delivery and angle, but I feel like you can get relievers like that pretty easily. And I, I don't know that he would get claimed, but uh, whatever. I mean, I guess if you're adding a bat, you want to drop a bat. So, I know. What are your thoughts on it? You know, I, I like it because it solidifies the fact that I think that the Tigers with him are a better team 
in, in, in the sense that he is under 30. He just turned he just turned 29 in October, and he's a guy who the Tigers are very familiar with. And it was an interesting. This is just came out on a release from Cody Saberhagen, which will be I'm in, I'm writing up Jonathan Scope for Motor City Bengals right now, and it was the what he said because he worked with Scott Kubral was his hitting coach in his during his All Star season. So in this is what, yeah, and this is what he said. He goes, I'm thankful for the opportunity to rejoin the Tigers for the 2021 season. We have a really good group here. We started to build something special last year. We're going to take it to the next level in 2021. I can't wait to experience the firsthand energy. <coughs> Excuse me. That the wonderful Tiger fans bring to Comerica Park. But it was something that he pointed out, that Cody pointed out in, in this tweet, and he's absolutely right. And this is, he said, one of the major factors to come back to Detroit as a manager and the coaching staff. I'm excited to play for AJ. He and I had a great conversation about allowing me to showcase my defensive versatility a bit more than last year. So wait a minute, Chris. Wait a minute. Hold on a second here. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a, oh, yeah. wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. That's to me. Say that to anybody. Say it to somebody. <laughs> so what's that saying? What's that saying then? What's that, what's that hidden language there, Chris? Well, I um, I don't know. I, did he say last year or in the past? Let's see. What is it? He said he and I are ready. A bit more. A bit more this year. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, I, maybe there's a little shot at at garden hire but i I just think he hasn't i I think he's played some shortstop in the past i wonder i think he's got the arm to play third he he played 90 there was a evan woodbury put out 96 percent of his starts have been at at second base and so if in terms of even if he's played before in terms of position wise and so i see 20 22 games at shortstop 17 at third base 805 at second base so okay Oh, I didn't know he played third. Okay, wow. All yeah, right. just for seventeen games. But yeah, I mean, it, it's. I don't know. I mean, he doesn't strike me. He he's not fast, but I don't think he's like a super plotter, and and I don't think he's like super agile. I don't. I think he'd be stretched at shortstop. I think he could handle third base with some practice, and hell, maybe even first base. Uh, I don't know. I, <laughs> I I you do get the feeling that that uh, Hinch is going to move guys all over the place this year, at least on the infield. I feel like you're going to have guys playing first and third, guys playing you know, Goodrum will play all four, and Willie Castro will play a shortstop and second, and if Freddy's is up, he'll play third and second. And, yeah, they're going to move guys around and, and see what they can do, I think. Yeah, and it, it'll be interesting to see if they sign a first baseman or not because it, 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 I would think – I mean, C.J. Crone's still sitting out there, so, yeah. I, I'm again, more than likely, if they don't sign him by the end of next week, then I don't know if they will or not, but – you're right. They do need to get another arm. Uh, the arms are coming off the ro- coming off the woodwork now. With you saw Trevor Bauer signed today with the Dodgers in a deal, a huge deal, and Mike Volkowitz or I'm saying his name correctly. Volty. Uh, Volty. Say Volty. Yeah, I'm gonna say Volty. Thank you. Volty signed a one year deal with Texas. So the Rangers, it's gonna see a matter of time before Walker comes off the board, and James Paxton, who's uh, Paxton, who's also on the board as well. So there's gonna be more pitchers and more infielders. And again, it's one of those things for Detroit, whether or not they're going to be able to spend how much money they have to spend, because we, we do not know. There is no mm-hmm. number out there that this is how much Detroit's going to spend, but they're, they're at least doing something. And, in, and this is a guy with the full season could give you 25 to 30 home runs, which sounds weird to say, but we've not seen that since 20. I mean, if, if I, if I'm, let me look at Detroit here for a quick second in terms of, Guys who've hit 20 home runs in 2019, the Tigers had nobody who the only person that hit close to 
20 home runs was Brandon Dixon. He had 15. Going back to 2018 for a quick second, Cassianos was 23, and then Candelario had mm-hmm. 19. So, it, I mean, of course, the shortened season aside, I understand what was going on last year, but still, it's, it's just not weird to say 25 or 30 home runs. And it was a lot, I mean, now we have to go back a little bit, Chris. The last Tiger to hit 30 home runs. That sounds strange to say that, but it's been JD? Miguel Cabrera, 38 in 2016. Oh, oh wow. Yeah, I, you know, I mean, we, we've talked before about they, I mean, what was it, two years ago, they had their top home run here, had 15 or something like that? Yeah, Dixon, yeah, that's correct, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah I don't know. I, I, It's nice to add a little pop. That was the cool thing about last year. Yeah, I, I'm sure people would be happy if they brought back Crone again. Uh, I do feel like they're getting a little bit crowded on the infield now, but, and, and there's still some arms out there that are interesting. I don't know, they, like, at least vaguely interesting. Porcello's still out there. Shoemaker is the guy that I was kind of interested in. Walker's still out there. Uh, Homer Bailey is not interesting, but he's still out there. <laughs> Mike Fires is out Bale? there. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I feel like we may be reaching the point now where they're going to just try to give guys like a bunch of just throw out as many sort of spring training invites as possible. I don't know if guys are going to get quite that desperate yet, but. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I think they're, I think they're probably about done. I still think they need a pitcher, like I said, but maybe, maybe that, maybe they won't get one. Yeah. I don't know. So, so you look at the off season and, and totality through so far, you got Grossman for two years, you got Ramos for one, you got Arena for one and you got, uh, scope. scope for one. Is there anybody else I'm missing? I mean, they, you know, Derek Holland oh. and all that stuff, but those are minor leaguers. Yeah, there's all yeah, the the minor leagues, the, a Nurso or Ramirez. They also had a couple first basemen coming to camp at two, but that's oh, really about it. It's it's kind of because pending a, a last minute decision, what have you. So, yeah. So, hey, it, it, good news on a Friday. So I'll take it. And honestly, it, I, it, I I'm assuming this because pitchers and catchers report in six days. So you're looking at possibly by the if the Tigers don't make a move by Wednesday, I don't think they're gonna they're gonna maybe wait till spring training and. Eddie, Baj- Eddie Bajek on Twitter said something along the lines of they'll, they'll pick up an arm in spring. And, I, and Eddie's right. I think there's yeah. going to be there's going to be some arm or some fallout. And, you know, look, if the, hey Dodgers, listen, if you want to send some payroll, you want to send us a, a picture, let us know. I mean, we're, we're cool with taking somebody. But yeah, trade for Dustin May here. <laughs> well, you know, beggars can't be. Ch- well, beggars would be, ch- <laughs> you know, yeah. or, or, you know, do a. Uh, do a Jack do a Jack Bukowski deal, which I mean, the, the the when the former Pistons GM supposedly offered nine players for Magic Johnson, the Lakers were like, eh, no, we're good, thanks. So <laughs> nine players. Yeah. Can you imagine that? Yeah. Can you imagine That'd be hilarious. Yeah, can you imagine some sort of deal to get like ten? I mean, I don't think baseballs. It's always like a three for three, or, or the the players are. It's always an even amount of players they're exchanging baseball trades, but uh, yeah, it's. I don't know. It's crazy. But uh, enjoy the interview with Enos Artis. We appreciate it. He's made some good content here. Also, the Tribe Call Quest episode with Shakia. Shakia? Yeah, Shakia. Shakia. Okay, there we go. Enjoy the episode with Shakia Taylor as we talk about her articles. We talk baseball. We talk Tribe Call Quest. Fair warning, there is a little bit of swearing on there. We normally don't swear. We, we kick pride in that. But at the same time, this is an episode there. We just did not care. So 
not not that we didn't care about what you think, but it was one of those episodes where it just came out natural as part of the conversation. And like I said, I, I said this in a previous recording that will be deleted, but I felt inspired based off the conversation with her. She, she was just so engaging. It was really cool to have a conversation like that. And it's along the lines of Stacey Gostulia's gold. And Stacey Gostulia is probably one of her – honestly, Chris, that's one of our, my favorite guests because – to, to go and say, okay, what was the number one hit in October 18th, 1985, and then know it like that without Pat and I, it's impressive. Yeah, that's a that's a skill for sure. Yeah. No, so, I mean, I think uh, you know we've got a couple of good. Hopefully, people enjoy these interviews. Uh, you know, we're not professional interviewers or anything like that, but these are a couple of really talented writers and really interesting people, and, and I hope you like them. Yeah, and and well, what is a professional interview, anyways, Chris? I mean, I, you know, Larry King. You don't do any research, and uh, <laughs> you, you almost certainly smell like farts, and. Uh, <laughs> I'm not Roy. Uh, look, I'm not Roy Firestone over here. Remember, that was oh. you know, like growing up, that was the guy that I remember did all the interviews. I'm like, and I had yeah. no idea who he was, but he did all the interviews. Remember that? Yeah, I, I, I don't know that. I don't. He was just on ESPN. You know, ESPN used to be a strange station. I remember coming home from school and watching. There would be like weird game shows during the day on ESPN with like with Mike Adam Lee as a host. And then it would be like the Roy Firestone, uh, yeah, one-hour talk show. I remember him talking to Barry Zito and Barry Zito playing Santeria on a guitar. But I, I'm like, all right, this is interesting. And then, uh, yeah, even go back to when the Deuce started. And Jim oh, yeah. Rome fighting Jim, Roman, uh, yeah. Jim Everett. You know. that, that, to me, is one of those things where when you – every it's like a time and place where you because you don't think of that Jim Rome anymore. That Jim Rome is long gone. But, you know, we're sitting here right now, and if you guys want to take a station break, you can. But if you call me Chris Everett to my face one more time. I already did it twice. Better, you better you call it one more time. We better st- take a station break. Well, it's a five-minute segment, <laughs> our five-segment show. We got a long way to go. Well, we do. We got a long way to go. We do. I'll get a couple segments out of well, here It's before. good to be here with you, though. Well, it's good you to know, see you, too. You've been talking like this behind my back for a long but time. But now I said it right here. Right. Exactly. Well, we got no problem well, I with think that. It, I think that you, you probably won't say it again. I bet I do. Okay. Chris. Oh man. <laughs> I mean what what an ass. Can you imagine can you imagine doing that? Like you're just a, a sports radio host. Shock you're on job. TV and you're just calling an NFL quarterback soft. Like calling him a girl, you know, which I obviously that wouldn't fly now anyway, because you're like, what? What's why? Um yeah, I just can't imagine having the, the, uh, I don't know. I don't even say balls. It's just like that level of arrogance to do that. But uh, that's what was uh, going on in the nineties. We had nothing else. Yeah, and not to mention too, Jim Rome. Remember, it was like during that period of the nineties, like ninety, the early nineties, where everything was like green, neon green for whatever reason. Those ESPN two graphics are really ugly. Remember that? Like they're. Yep, yep. Like when Cherry Coke had that really weird can for a while because they were like, Cherry Coke is an alternative. And they had that like stripey can. Anyway, but yeah. I, yeah. But no, no, there was, there was definitely, there was a definite color palette to the early 90s uh, and, and even on into the mid 90s that like, I feel like we haven't had anything like that since like the last 25 years or so. There's not like a distinctive color palette for a certain decade or may, maybe it's just call, me yeah. not paying attention. But like, you know, you think of the 60s and the 70s and there were certain styles and, and definitely in the early 90s there were some styles there that uh yeah you look back on and, and crack up yeah so, for example like remember every team had a power blue except for the tigers of course but the, remember that late 70s powder blue uniforms what comes to mind mm-hmm. for example 
Yeah, no, and and teal, teal became the the absolutely massive. Oh there, yeah, uh, the late '80s, early '90s with the Hornets, and then Pistons, Pistons of course, and yeah, there yeah. were teal teams everywhere. The Sharks and the Ducks. Um, yeah, it's the teal. Like I had a Sharks starter jacket because it it just stood out to me. And then the Sharks have, to me, the Sharks still have one of the best logos of all time. I I love that logo. Yeah. That logo is timeless and such a cool logo. So yeah, there you go with the expansion teams. We talk about how it's cool to have expansion teams. I remember being super excited when they're. The expansion hockey teams. I don't. I don't care at all anymore because whatever. But <laughs> uh, you know, I, when I was a kid, I remember. You know, I think that the Sharks coincided with the first EA hockey game. I want to say like that was the first time you could. That's correct. Yeah, that's the first game. So you, I was like, oh, right, I can't yeah. wait. I played with the the Sharks and like I don't know if Archer Zerbe was their goalie back then, but uh, I remember the name Archer Zerbe because they were a cool expansion team. And, and also they beat the that. Wings too. Remember that? Yeah, yeah. Uh, was it Osgood had a terrible play? Yeah, he a lot of goal and, from like the blue line or something yeah. ridiculous like that. And yeah, that was yeah, look at these look at these traumatic memories. Come Sorry, folks, back. you guys were triggered back there. So, <laughs> but uh, thanks for listening. Like I said, plenty of punk. Plenty of podcast yeah. content we provided. Yeah, this spread week. this spread this week out for you know over over like ten workouts or whatever. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, that's true. We we do. We're gonna be like I said next week. Not sure exactly where we're going with, but at any rate, let's check us out. We appreciate it again. Go to sportsradiodetroit.com. Check out all the great content over there, and of course, go to motorcitybangles.com. Go to our website, motorcitybangles.com. Check out all the great content there. Also, check out our top twenty. Prospects list right now. We're at number twelve. I want to say with Franklin Perez. Yep. And we'll be dropping number eleven and ten here shortly. So have a good weekend, everybody. Hope everybody's whenever you listen to us, and of course, sit back, relax, and enjoy this interview with Eno Saris. Welcome back to Tigers SRD. We are pleased to bring in our next guest. He is a Sabre Award-nominated writer, uh, probably the best explainer of analytics out there today, uh, Mr. Eno Saris. Thank you very much, Eno. Too kind. Thank you for that introduction. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, like I said, I, w- this was supposed to happen yesterday. I kind of screwed up with some poor communication, uh, but we got a little bit of a fortuitous bounce because your big uh, free agent, or not free agent, your fantasy starting pitcher ranks came out today, so we could discuss that too. So that, that's fun. But uh but before we get to that, we always like to ask our guests about their earliest baseball memory to get a little of uh, their background. So if you have something that sticks out, we'd love to hear it. Yeah, it's funny. Uh, I don't know. You know, uh, my earliest sort of baseball adjacent memory is going to Atlanta Fulton County Stadium back in the day. And um, you know, it's been a long story, but I, I, some of my friends had somehow ended up with seats behind home plate. And so I was sitting with the wives of um, all those legendary Braves. And, uh, you know, just, just seeing the different wives and just seeing the different family members was, uh, was kind of sort of a general memory. But very specific baseball memory is Sid Bream <laughs> chugging around the bases. Uh, I think, uh, I think a, sort of a backup catcher, like um, Francisco Cabrera, I think his name was, had uh, just hit a single against the Pirates, and uh, Sid Green's old team, and uh, the Braves, it was like the Braves' first postseason win with that crew. Uh, it ended up being so good um, for so long. And uh, I just remember kind of just screaming, 
<laughs> just running around the house screaming because I grew up in Atlanta and uh, that was a, that was a big moment. So that's that's my first memory. Yeah, I, I have a pretty vivid memory uh, memory of that too. I I, uh, I wasn't a Braves fan, but I was I was at the time I think I was a Dodgers fan because uh, Daryl mm. Strawberry had just moved to the Dodgers, I think. And I thought back then yeah. I feel like it was the Dodgers, the Braves, and the Reds were all in the same division. Yeah, that's correct. The AL, the AL West, Chris. Or, yeah, NL West, yeah. yeah. That, that was really weird because the the Braves, uh, was it the Braves took the AL, the NL West from the Giants on the mm-hmm. last day one year. I remember <laughs> uh, the Giants were ahead by like 13. And they back. And like thinking back, I'm like, the Braves took it from the Giants? Like, what? <laughs> well, yeah, I, I remember thinking like, oh, we, you know, we don't have to worry about the Braves because they were terrible last year. This is just luck. And, and it got to worry about the Reds. They won the World Series last year. And nope, the Braves just kept going. And then, uh, yeah, and I feel like wasn't there a, like a huge error in that inning that just doesn't seem to get it, it's like a, a Buckner style ball through the, the legs and, and people don't seem to remember it. I'm trying to the the, the one yeah. thing it was the reason why that series was so big around here is because Steve Avery was from a neighboring city not too, like about ten minutes away from where I live now, and everybody in 1991 so the Tigers at this point were starting to become irrelevant. Everybody in my area was Braves fan. Everybody Steve Avery because he led him to TV too because of TBS right. Yeah, TB and also yeah because of TBS as well. But Steve Avery, mm-hmm. Steve Avery led the the high school team to us almost to a state title in 1988 oh, and when wow. he was drafted. So he was really he's still he still lives in the area too. And he actually plays in an adult baseball league. Fun fact: the third one there, <laughs> he so. just owns people. He still yeah. plays. Yeah, he still plays, but he doesn't pitch. That's from my from my understanding, he does not pitch. That's he, he plays. He, he used. <laughs> yeah, and also he's actually a pretty good basketball player too. So. Anyways, I didn't want to get too sidetracked yeah. with Steve Avery talk there, but go ahead. No, well, and then there was He's a small single too. Member of that big crew, you know. Like oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, he seemed like he was like the. Uh, I don't know. The, early on, it was yeah, it was uh, Glavin, Smoltz, and Avery, and then Maddox came back, and then you had uh, you know various other guys later on. But uh, yeah, I remember him. Uh, that was you know big baseball cards back then. But uh, speaking about the Tigers being irrelevant. Um, how about that top 200 in one fantasy pitcher list I was looking at the, today? And I don't think anybody would expect the Tigers. If, if your fantasy season hinges on Tigers pitchers, you're in trouble no matter what. <laughs> but uh, but it's, it's definitely interesting the way you do it. Uh, we don't talk a ton of fantasy on the show just because it would just be you know me talking about my fantasy team and nobody wants to hear that. <laughs> but uh, but these, these rankings are really interesting. And I was curious. I, I read it before the, the Bauer signing and then i saw i think you updated it but i didn't know how much you moved them or how if you moved gonsolin down at all i didn't see that yeah yeah i had to um you know it's a it's a you know pitching is you know by projections you know you can project hitting easier than you can project uh, pitching that's part of why i've been so fascinated with pitching is that there's something there that makes it hard to judge the two talent i think it has something to do with pitchers dictating the pace of the game, dictating what happens in the game, choosing the pitches. And so they can change their true talent pretty quickly. If they change the shape of a pitch, they change how much they use the pitch, they change, they add a pitch. Um, And so, um, you know, just trying to nail the true talent of a pitcher is really difficult. And so I've, uh, over time, I've tried to separate what I think are the most important skills for a pitcher. And I think this year, I've added injury risk, and so now I've got a number for stuff, which is just based on 
you know, the movement and velocity and spin rates and angles of the pitch. Um, then I've got a number for command, which is how well they can do what they want with the pitch. Um, and now I've got a number for injury risk. And that's still kind of in its nascency. We've, we've just started to develop this. Uh, but between the three, I feel like uh, you get a good sense of what a pitcher is and maybe a better sense of what the projections uh, can, can do for you. Yeah, and then you, you kind of – you have a – it's the bat. that is that a, like a projection system that kind of factors in the industry as a whole, views, views these players? Yeah, yeah. The bat is uh, like a traditional projection system. I mean, um, you know, I'm working with Derek Carty, who, who runs that, to – add stuff, add stuff to add, uh, velocity, spin, uh, direction, spin rate, uh, movement on the pitches. Um, you know, we're going to, um, uh, try and, uh, put that, bake that all into a projection system. But for now that's just taking things like strikeout rate, walk rate, ground ball rate, things like that. Um, and trying to predict what they do. Uh, so I, I keep an eye on that, but I stray from it. And Gonsolin, Tony Gonsolin, was one of my favorites just because of the way his pitches move. Uh, they move in ways that uh, have been proven to be good um, in, in baseball. And, mm-hmm. um, and it's no surprise because the Dodgers are um, the, uh, the most sort of pitching forward, pitching development forward uh, team in the big leagues. Yeah, you know, we, we've talked about Gonsolin a couple times. I think I described him as like a turbo Casey Buys. We, we tend to, you know, we frame things around the, the, the Tigers here. <laughs> you've got a guy. Um, he does have the same split, but there's a big difference. And the big difference, the reason I had Mize so low, mm-hmm. um, which might have uh, raised an eyebrow uh, here and there, uh, and especially here, um, is <laughs> uh, I have Mize with a 96 stuff, which suggests he has below average stuff, which is maybe hard to believe when you watch because, you know, 94 miles an hour, all this stuff dives left and right. Um, the problem is um, that he's kind of – his best fastball is a sinker, I think, because mm-hmm. four-seam doesn't have really great shape. And if you look across baseball, the sinker is being devalued. It gives up too much contact. If you don't have really great uh, command with it, um, it gives up too much contact. And the hitters have developed uh, sort of steep, steep uh, swings that can take the sinker out. Um, and, and hit it hit it hard too, so it doesn't necessarily limit hard contact, and it doesn't get the same whiff as a four seam. Um, and I think you saw some of that with Mize's debut. So I, I'm not saying that he can't harness it and figure some stuff out, um, but it is in some ways an old school arsenal. It looks amazing by old school standards. Tony Gonsolin looks amazing by new school standards. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that was one of the things I we, I just kind of framed it like the difference between the Tigers and the Dodgers is is the Dodgers got this guy uh, in the ninth round for like fourteen dollars, and the <laughs> Tigers paid eight eight half million dollars or whatever for Casey Mize. But uh, you know, we, sometimes we get a little pessimistic when we lose hundred games every year. Um, well, I mean, the one thing I wanted to ask about that is about well, pitching design too. Is that does that necessarily mean the split fingers back? Because I remember in the nineties, David Cohn. I was thinking about some some other pitchers that that splitter was a, a, a like a trending pitch, and is that going to be something that we're going to see more often again, or is that just kind of a given? Just small sample sizes. No, uh, the one thing about the splitter is, you know, if you hold a split finger in your hand and then touch the bottom of your elbow, if you touch touch sort of uh, just just hold the bottom of your elbow and, and hold the the ball in a split finger grip, you'll notice um, that. You know, putting that ball in that grip and then taking it back out, you'll notice 
that there's a change in sort of which muscles are flexed in your elbow. And um, I don't know if this is like a hard science or not, but there are definitely people who think that it basically um, occupies uh, some of your forearm that would normally protect your elbow. Hmm. So in other words, some people think that it's a dangerous pitch um, and it's dangerous for you. The other, then there's a newer school uh, problem with the split finger, which is um, it doesn't repeat as well. You know, it's a harder pitch to command because it's kind of, you know, it depends on if it's like a true fork ball or if it's more of a split finger fastball. Um, But the more movement you get on them, the deeper you jam it into your hand, the less command you have of it. And the less command you have of it, the less often you can repeat the same spin axis or the same same spin efficiency and so on. And so, you know, a lot of modern pitching coaching is, okay, we want this spin axis, we want this spin efficiency, and we want this much drop. And if you, like, manage that on three out of four split fingers, that seems like fine, but the fourth one gets hit for a homer. Yeah, no, that seems like it was one of my main concerns with my coming out of college. I I kind of compared him to, like, you know, at best you want to get, like, a Tanaka out of him or something like that, who was, who was, was a very good pitcher but he was homer prone because it seems like if a split finger doesn't split, <laughs> then it's basically a batting practice fastball. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't know. It, it was, it was interesting to look at these. Uh, I'm not going to give it away because it's, you know, athletic, but uh, I will say that Spencer Turnbull was the only one of the pitchers on the Tigers who made the top 100. Uh, and if, but at the same time, I think you had him higher ranked more highly than, the, the bat rankings or whatever would suggest normally. So if Tigers fans want to have a homer pick and maybe get a little value out of it, Turnbull could be a guy, I guess, maybe later rounds. Yeah. Like, for example, like compared to my uh, Turnbull stuff we, in the, by the stuff metric that I got that just looks mm-hmm. at velocity and movement and stuff, um, you know, Turnbull stuff is 7% better than league average. Uh, its command was basically league average. And um, he also exhibits uh, a really cool um, effect. And it's kind of hard to explain just like really quickly, but I'll try. Um, he's got something going on. It's called seam shifted weight. And basically, um, so basically what we thought, what we thought um, was most important for a pitch um, was basically uh, the spin of the pitch and the spin axis. So we thought if you have this axis and this spin, this much spin turns into upward movement. This much spin turns into sideways movement. Boom. That's your pitch model. That's how pitches move. They move because of the spin and the direction of the spin. That's it. But uh, this one researcher, Barton Smith, at um, I think it's the University of Washington, um, was looking at pitches, and he saw that pitches with the exact same spin axis would move differently. And um, what he found was with a, he had a really good pitching machine that could do uh, spin and spin in different directions and stuff. And what he found was that the seams on a, on a baseball will actually create a wake and they'll create movement. Um, and that seems like to some people listening to them, they're like, duh, you know, that's why there's different <laughs> grips, but um, you know, being able to pinpoint that. Um, so now we can look at Turnbull and we can say his fastball, his four seam and his two seam have very similar spin axes. And so coming out of the hand, the pitches look very similar because they're spinning in the same direction. But because of the way he's gripped them, one has sinker movement and the other has more like forcing movement. And I think that leads to a fair amount of deception. And I think you've seen 
Turnbull uh, do better than people expected uh, so far in his career. And part of that is playing with the four-seam high in the zone, playing the four-seam off the two-seam, and having a wide arsenal of pitches, you know. And uh, if he takes any step forward in, you know, sequencing those pitches, commanding those pitches, uh, I think there's another another level for, for Turnbull. Yeah, you know, Turnbull's a guy that we've always – he's always kind of perplexed us, uh, you know, our, our group of friends because we couldn't uh, – we couldn't quite figure out you know, it just seemed like he wouldn't strike out a ton of guys, but nobody would be able to, you know, make good solid contact off of him. And uh, yeah, I mean, that explains it. I, I very much enjoyed your piece on that, and, and particularly the, uh, the the pitch overlay you did, which was a great. Uh, that's one thing that I'd love to learn how to do one day is do those. Uh, it was a great uh, great example of, of what you're talking about there. One thing we had I'm the professor. Curious. We had the professor on the podcast too, and he did a really good job. Martin explained it really well what he was doing. Um, with oh, the pitching machine, good. And, yeah, me, sure. <laughs> yeah, it was, <laughs> no, it was it was funny too because we were we we're gonna do a visual, we we're gonna have them on the YouTube, and, it, and it, we we're gonna have them on the YouTube, we we're gonna have them on our YouTube channel, but instead it was all audio. But even the way he explained it to me made sense, and then Chris's article that followed up with it made for me. I'm not it, 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 the way he he just made it easier to for somebody who watches in a, a lot of baseball like I do, I'm like, oh, okay, I, I get it. And Chris, I think that came across pretty well on the podcast. Yeah, I and mean, I think, yeah, you know, did a good job too, and he did a great article. And it, it's it, we're kind of at the point now where, and we talked with our buddy Brandon Day about who wrote a good article about it too. And, and we're kind of like... That's right, Brandon, yeah. Where to, like, where, where we are now is if we can identify pitchers who might benefit from, you know, tweaking some, playing around with seam-shifted wake, or if, if that's the sort of thing where we're just going to have to wait to see who, like, you know, using the data next year to say, okay, somebody has, has done something here. I don't know if there's I, – I don't know. I just feel like – I, think you, I, I, think I don't you know what can. the next step I think is. It's, I think it's probably good. Uh, I think it's probably best for someone who has a decent four seam and can't, and can't do a two seam and thinks he could benefit from a, uh, a good sinker or two seam. Because then what you do is you say, you got this good pitch, you got this good four seam, Let's just basically cycle through different uh, grips and measure the, uh, you know, the intent, like the observed spin axis and the um, inferred spin axis, like the, the way that it moves versus the way that it looks. And basically, um, we, we, we keep mucking around with that until we get what we want. So I, th- I think that the most advanced pitching coaches and, um, and the most advanced um, organizations are doing stuff like this. For example, uh, Tony Gonsolin uh, is not necessarily a seam shifted weight guy, but um, him and like Jose Urquidy uh, on the Astros, if you look at their pitch movements, it looks like they were designed. You know, it's like everything that research has said told us is good about pitches, they have. They have ride on their four seam, they have drop on their curveball, they have sideways movement on a cutter or slider, uh, you know, they have, the, they have the right sort of velocity gaps. It seems like it's designed. If you look at Alec Mills on the Cubs, Alec Mills' uh, breaking ball and, and, and fastball, they have the same uh, – they mirror each other's spin. So the spin um, is exactly opposite. So if you're a hitter, they look exactly the same, um, and then one goes up and one goes down. And then his sinker is a seam-shifted weight sinker. So I know that Jeremy Greenhouse works for the, the Cubs, and I know that he has been writing about stuff since 2007. He's the one who inspired me to try and, uh, and come up with the stuff metric. And so Jeremy Greenhouse uh, works for them, and Alec Mills comes up, and he throws 80 poo, and he shouldn't be any good. And he throws a no-hitter, and people say, ah, you know, he probably got lucky. Well, maybe he did, or maybe 
you know, Alec Mills is, uh, you know, the Cubs' way of developing a pitcher. I, I want to say manufacturing because it's a little bit rude to the pitcher. The pitcher did a lot of work, too. <laughs> mm-hmm. He wasn't just, like, grown at a lab. But you know what I mean. It's like they, they, they have their ideas about what makes pitches good, and they develop those kinds of pitches. And it's really fascinating to watch the Cubs because everybody else in baseball is uh, building basically you Darvishes, you know, no, yeah. not much command, lots of velocity. Uh, lots of pitches and lots of movement. And the Cubs just sold you Darvish and are building a bunch of Kyle Hendricks. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, that, that's a, uh, I think, what did I read an article? Uh, uh, maybe it was you that said that they might not be able to break a pane of glass. I think that might've been. Yeah. Exactly. yeah, yeah. They're, they're going <laughs> to average like 89 as a, as a, yeah. as a rotation. Well, I, I remember earlier this year, Alec Mills uh, came and pretty much owned, owned the Tigers and it, you know, yeah. watching it, it kind of felt, like slop, but at the same, I was watching. I'm like, you know what? No, this reminds me of Doug Fister. Uh, it, it just. Oh wow. Doug Fister, you know, when the Tigers got him back in, geez, 2011, I think maybe 2010. Uh, he wasn't necessarily viewed as as a, this, you know, above average pitcher. But you know, when he came here, he was throwing 89, 91, uh, but just everything was moving all over the place. And yeah, I, I don't know. It, it just felt like this. This is a guy who has a, a better understanding of pitching. And you got to kind of ignore the stuff. Although, uh, you yeah, know, and by your stuff metric. Looking at his stuff, looking at his stuff right now through modern lens, mm-hmm. the velocity isn't good, but, um, you know, his four seam had good ride. And his sinker actually had good drop and fade. So, like, he, his, his, his two fastballs actually look pretty good in today's terms. And then he had, like, a wide array of pitches. I mean, he was like a five, six pitch pitcher, you know? So that's that's absolutely the other way for for some teams is to build new Hunjin Ryu's and new uh, you know Kyle Hendricks instead of uh, trying to build the next Garrett Cole basically Cole Cole represents one pole and Kyle Hendricks is the other. Yeah, well, yeah, you know, you've touched on this uh, the stuff the quality of stuff plus or whatever is the metric there. I'm a little bit curious if you can go into the command plus a little bit. How important is that and how? How do you figure that out? Yeah, Command Plus is controversial, and I know there's uh, a lot of people who denigrate it and, and look down upon it, but um, it, it, it answers a question uh, from a different angle that a lot of us are trying to figure out. So, you know, when we look at Command, a lot of times we look at, if we look at it through the lens of pitch effects, we'll look at the zone and we'll say, okay, this guy hits these corners really well, and so he has good Command. The problem I have with that is there are people with bad Command that just live on the outside of the zone. Uh, Rich Hill would always show up as having good command by those. And I don't think Rich Hill has good command. Uh, I've watched a fair amount of Rich Hill. (laughs) (laughs) He does not have good command. Uh, Wouldn't seem so. And so so what happens uh, is that stats perform. uh, This company has uh, stringers watching each game. They, They went to a different angle. They said, how often do we try and figure out what the pitcher was trying to do at that time uh, with that pitch? And then judge him based on what we think he was trying to do. So if we think he's trying to throw a curveball in the dirt, then we look at where he throws curveballs in the dirt and we measure it from there, you know? Mm -hmm. And if we think he was trying to jam that guy off the plate inside, then we look at where he throws pitches off the plate inside, you know? And we look at the hitters scouting him for it and we look at the pitchers scouting him for it and we say, okay, this is where he's trying to go. This is where he ended up. It's not perfect because – Teams actually have a version of this. I know this because I've talked to, like, Trevor Bauer and other, other pitchers. Teams have a version of this. They, theirs is better because 
they can talk to the pitcher after the game and said, mm-hmm. where are we trying to go here? Where are we trying to go here? And they'll do that. They'll debrief after a game, and then they'll make a map that's like, okay, this is where you miss um, with this fast – like when, you, when you're throwing here with the fastball, this is where you miss. And that can lead to better game plans in the future. So you can say, okay, when you're trying to go up and away uh, with the fastball, you miss in these directions. So either aim a little bit lower – or maybe it's okay to miss those directions, or we'll never call a pitch where the miss might take you into the heart of the zone. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, you know, you can sort of, you know, figure out what happens with what the pitcher intends to do versus, you know, what happens in the end, and then either adjust for it. Like with Tyler Glass now, they told him, stop trying to pitch the corners. Every time you pitch the corners, you end up in the middle of the strike zone. So instead, just pitch up and down. Always aim for the middle of the plate and only pitch up and down. Just aim up over the middle of the plate or down over the middle of the plate. And that's all we want you to do. And it's really simplified things for glass now. It's really worked. Command Plus tries to get at, like, Marco Gonzalez is really good at Command Plus. Dallas Teichel is really good. Um, you know, there's uh, Aaron Nola, Zach Gallon, Kenta mm-hmm. Maeda. Um, you know, these are the – Jacob deGrom is the, the sort of paragon of adding stuff to command. Uh, Clayton Kershaw is really good at stuff and command. Um, and so I wanted to have command in there. Kyle Hendricks is a perennial leader in command plus. So I just wanted to have that in there because I prefer stuff. I'd, I'd rather lead with stuff. Uh, but there are plenty of pitchers like Kyle Hendricks that overperform based on their command. And I don't think that walk rate, uh, I don't think that walk rate captures it all. There are plenty of pitchers with, so Zach Wheeler has good command, but, you know, just whatever walk rate. Yeah, no, I, I think you're spot on there. It's, it seems like we, we've done a lot of uh, sort of scouting reports lately for, for the things we're writing about, and it's one of the harder things to, to quantify is, is a pitcher's command. You, you'd say, oh, he's got good command, but you're like, eh, all right. Like, you know, Casey Mice was supposed to have impeccable command, and it hasn't shown up yet, and, uh, you know, it just takes time, and, and it's cool to have a metric for that for sure. How about this? Tariq Skubal has, has really poor command, like reliever-level command. Yeah, that's uh, that's, that's what the what, numbers say. How does that line up with you guys watch? Well, I, I've you know, seen it, a couple times, but I, I think that's probably I don't know. It, it's one of those interesting cases where he does seem to miss within the zone a lot. He's uh, mm-hmm. not hitting the glove necessarily, but it really he had I think two bad outings last year, uh, and at the same time, even when he was missing with his fastball, guys weren't hitting it. So I, I don't know exactly what's going on there. I mean, you've heard that he's got, uh, you know, it's the, the angle, the arm angle and uh, the spin rate mm. and the velocity combined to, to make it tougher to square up. But, yeah, he, he definitely didn't appear to be a, you know, he's not a pinpoint command guy. But there were times when he, when he was able to do it. So I don't know if it's just, you know, he's going to grow into that or yeah, I know there's some people who think he's going to be a reliever long term. Yeah, that's where, I mean, I think because of his delivery, um, that has a lot to do with the injury risk, possibly, but his chase contact was 57%. So, um, I don't know, Chris, when I, when I watched him pitch last year, I thought in terms of commanding the, I thought he commanded the inside of the play well, but it was just basically if, if against maybe, against, especially against the White Sox, where the White, I mean, the White Sox hit every pitcher like crazy, but Scooble to a certain extent, they didn't hit, hit him very hard. Yeah. Well, they did. Well, you know, it's comparatively speaking to everybody else. But my point is, I, I don't know. I thought that from what I saw of him a little bit, he was a, a, 
further ahead than Mize was in yeah. terms of a command, a throwing with 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 command, hitting the inside corner, and even hitting the outside corner, and getting people to chase. I thought he did a better job of that than Mize did. Yeah, I mean, well, I, I think I'm, I'm definitely interested in watching him. I, he reminds me of a little bit of Luis Patino uh, from the left side. Uh, he's lefty, right? Yeah. Yep. That's yeah, correct. Yeah, yep. Yep. Yeah, in the numbers, I see a little bit of Patino, and and uh, and I'm interested because the the change. Uh, I don't know. I think the change is part of the reason why his command score is low, and maybe he'll find himself, um, you know, whittling it down to to pitches he can command better and using those better mm-hmm. more often. So um, you know, that's that's a way you can improve your command score without improving your command. <laughs> is <laughs> yeah. uh, just throwing pitches you can command more often. <laughs> well, it makes sense. Um, so that's, that's, a, that's an adjustment that you'll see, like, Glassnow didn't throw his change up anymore. That's part of it, too, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so so I'm interested I'm interested to see. Mize and, and Scubo are, are guys that I've had my eyes on. I mean, Mize comes up with the added uh, sort of asterisk of having terrible strikeout rates in the minors. And everyone's sort of saying, oh, he didn't need to strike people out in the minors. I'm like, well, you know, you'd still expect <laughs> For a top prospect, you'd still expect way more strikeouts. Yeah, for sure. And, and, and with Mize, there's uh, and we've talked about this uh, a lot on the show, but like he's got a track record of pitching really well for a short period of time, and then having you know his shoulder start barking or something like that, and then really falling off afterward. And so that's that's a long term concern there too. But uh, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Fulmer, I think, was the highest on the injury uh, rating there, which makes sense given that he just came back from. <laughs> couple surgeries but uh no it's, it's interesting you, you uh you brought up uh scuba as a reliever i had uh, our buddy mark uh wanted to ask you about relievers specifically in, in the idea like uh basically if you've looked into how long can relievers uh, remain reliable because it does seem like they have peaks of about two or three years unless they're you know all-time greats yeah it's uh it's very rare to have a long career as a reliever um and um I've, I've seen some relationship between command plus and uh, career length, you know, like Granky, uh is a big command plus guy. And, you know, I think if you have more than uh, two, like the more pitches you have and the more command you have, the longer you can last. And I think you look at like Joaquin Soria, right? Mm-hmm. He just signed, he just signed another deal, you know, <laughs> to go to the Diamondbacks. I mean, that dude has been around forever and he's got a starters level arsenal he just couldn't stay healthy to, to be a starter. And, um, and he's got good command. So that's, that's what I kind of uh, – that's, that's where I see command and number of pitches being the most important is when you're talking about longevity. And so something that's not important because you're just talking about the next four or five years a lot of times, you know. Uh, but for the, uh, for the pitcher themselves, it's, it's hugely important. When it comes to relievers, uh, they're super volatile year to year. You're talking about small samples every time, 60, 60 innings at most, you know, most of the time. Um, and that's why something like stuff was created because, um, you know, I talked to a, an agent recently and he said, with my relievers, they don't want to know a single stat other than velocity and, you know, maybe some stuff about spin and, and spin direction, like track man stuff. They only want to know how he's pitching. They only want to know the track man. They, they, have, they don't care at all about his strikeout rate last year or whatever, or this or that. And, uh, Interesting. Would you see if you if you age pitchers? Bill Petty has a great piece on Fangraphs. If you age pitchers, um, you'll see that uh, velocity just goes down for every pitcher on average, right? Mm-hmm. And as velocity goes down, uh, so does strikeout rate. But 
strikeout rate and and starter velocity don't go down precipitously. Like starter velocity goes down just like reliever velocity, but strikeout rate for starters stays steady longer and strikeout rate for relievers is tied to velocity. And that's because they have two pitches. You yeah. know, a lot of times. They have two or three pitches. So if they have two pitches and they're throwing ninety two all of a sudden, career's over. So yeah. you know, um so but if you're Zach Granke and you've got and you, you come every season with a new pitch and you start throwing an EFIS, I think he's gonna like throw a knuckleball this year or something. Um <laughs> then you know, you keep people off balance by having good command and having, you know, ten pitches and doing what you gotta do to get to get out. So um, I think that's the that's the big thing with relievers is they have fewer pitches, they have less command. That's why people end up as relievers. They they have less command, and um, and so they uh, they don't have the, the pitches and the command. When the velocity goes, they go. Yeah, the Tigers fans have definitely seen that thing uh, happen to relievers over the last uh, decade or so. It happened with Jose Valverde and then Francisco Rodriguez, and yeah, Ben, ben Watt uh, to a certain degree. And in, you know yeah. what it reminds me of? And I hate to say it, it sounds like a weird comparison, but it reminds me of like running backs. Running backs, do you have a certain mm-hmm. when? Yes, yeah. You know, it's like as soon as a running back hits thirty, they're done. They're done, though. Yeah. And it's like that's. I, I can't. Who, I mean, I who? go ahead. Is it true that like uh, is it true that are there running backs that survive a little bit longer that can catch the ball? Yeah, like Frank Gore. I mean, Frank Gore comes to mind. I mean, Frank Gore was I think he had like fifteen knee surgeries too, something insane like that. But yeah, guys he, who can he's catch been around the, forever. But I, if you can catch the ball, they can run you in different packages. You can you still have use. You can you know they won't you won't be the feature back. You know that's always usually like the young guy right out of college in the first four or five years. But yeah, that's that, I think that's a, that's a, you know it's power. You know, yeah. and if you if you have anything other than power, then maybe you can find other ways to, to help the team. Yeah, I, I, I think just, somebody like Reggie Bush, I guess, you know, he ended up he ended up not being a great pure running back, but he had a pretty long career because he was, you know, capable of splitting out and catching passes. Marshall Falk comes to mind, too. Yeah, exactly. I thought that was a, yep. he was Marshall Falk was one of those guys that I remember being that comes to mind because I mean, we saw Barry Sanders, who wasn't not he was not a catching running back whatsoever. He just zigzagged across the field, and that was fine by me. But Marshall yeah. Falk and that Colts offense, or even with the I'm sorry with the Rams, the greatest show on turf. Man, what a weapon! So sorry, Nick, yeah. I'm subject on there. But uh, <laughs> well, yeah, I, I only like wanted that's to... also important for when you sign like a young player, if you're signing a free agent or whatever. You mm-hmm. you want to sign um, Curtis Granderson. You want to sign uh, you know Andrew McCutcheon. You don't want to sign Chris Davis. There was never any in any world was Chris Davis a good signing. Yeah, either one really. <laughs> well, and there was a there was a story going around here a couple of years back that that uh, Mike Illich, uh, rest in peace, before he died, he really wanted to sign Chris Davis. He wanted to spend a lot of money to sign Chris Davis, and I think it was Dave Dombrowski talked him out of it, and they ended up getting. I don't know which which year that was. Maybe that was Avila talked him out of when they got Upton, but I, I don't uh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, that's. Uh, I think and, yeah. and Upton is actually a better signing in the end because yeah. Wait, Justin Upton, right? Yeah, yeah. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. That, that's a better signing because he's an all-around player, you know. And look, I mean, he's he's having a little bit of uh, image. He's having a little bit of injury issues, but uh, I think he's aging all right. Like you know, he, when he's in there, he's still a decent player because he's not a DH yet. You know, <laughs> he mm-hmm. he started as like a shortstop as a prospect. Yeah, that's uh, we. we... I still marvel that uh, Dombrowski was able to trade Prince Fielder to Texas for Ian Kinsler. Uh, it's one of the great heists uh, and unfortunately you know Prince Fielder got hurt after that but 
Um, no, the, the, the only other I, I wanted to touch, uh, you know, I mentioned at the very beginning that, that you have Sabre nominated for the, the Sabre Analytics Award, and I wanted to touch on that a little bit and, and see it's, uh, it was a, was it the presentation that you were nominated for? Was there a paper too? Was it's uh, using clustering to find pitch subtypes and effective pairings? Yeah, you know, what, what we're trying to get out there and we're, we're trying to do second versions of that and try to push it, push it forward and in ways that are, we hope are better. But, um, you know, there's, there's something about the interaction of pitches. And, you know, what we call slider, you know, what we call slider, dude, how many sliders are there in the world? I mean, you know, there's like, there's like the Chaz Rowe, there's like the Corey Kluber, there's like the, the, yeah. the Jake DeGrom, you know, there's just like all these, all these like, um, you know, the, the tight, the power cutter, the, the you know, there's, I mean, there's, the slider is, is so many different things. And we, we theorize basically that certain types of sliders might work better with certain types of fastballs. And, um, and what we're trying to get at eventually is a more dynamic look at, at stuff where we don't just say, hey, ride is good. Everyone who has ride is better for it, right? And then we, what we do is we, we go and we can say, if you don't have a riding fastball, you should throw the Chaz Rowe slider and not the, 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 the Grom, you know, at least when you're trying, when you're sort of developing your pitches. These kind of pitches interact well with these kind of pitches. And this kind of movement interacts well with this kind of movement. Yeah. Just basically a more dynamic uh, stuff metric. And um, uh, that's only possible when you look at an arsenal, you know, as at least as pairings. We did pairings. But we're also trying to look at arsenals as a whole and just, like, try to describe the interaction between the different movements on the different pitches in a way that we can link it to outcomes and then say these groupings of pitchings do well together. You know, if you – if you have a great thinker, you should throw your, your breaking ball to look like this. I mean, spin mirroring gets at that a little bit, and even team shifted weight gets at that a little bit. Um, so that's it's the idea of, like, the, that certain sub-pitch types, you know, power slider, uh, sweeping slider, uh, big hook, those types of subtypes, some subtypes work better with other subtypes together. Yeah, that's really fascinating to me because, yeah, I, I – I think we, it was one of those things we all kind of intuitively knew, but I don't know that anybody ever looked at it. Like, I, I think of just playing MLB The Show, and you'd have a guy with, like, four different curveballs. <laughs> like, what? All right, he's got a knuckle curve, he's got a 12-6 curve, and he's got a, a sweeping curve. And it's like, huh, all right, well, maybe these aren't all the same pitches. Uh, so, yeah, it, it's really fascinating. It was you and, and mm -hmm. uh, was it a professor from SMU and a student from SMU? Um, and a student from Wake, which is Wake student Forest Wake. has okay, a, a really great analytics program. Um, yeah, Joe Camp and, and Greg Dvorak. But uh, one thing that's really interesting is that one of the things that sent me out on this whole thing, uh, one of the people that sent me out on this whole string of, of, of thought, this one sort of string of thought that I've had, is Shane Green. No, oh, interesting. And Shane Green came to the Tigers, and, and I, I always had this question is like, if you have four breaking balls, do you have zero breaking balls? <laughs> yeah. It's like that thing, if you have four quarterbacks, do you have zero quarterbacks? Um, and so, you know, when Shane Green left the Yankees, I said, this is a good trade. I think he can be a starter. I think he'll just be uh, a guy who has three breaking balls. You're a pitcher with three breaking balls. And at the time, there weren't a lot of guys who threw three breaking balls, you know? Mm -hmm. um, you know, the idea of, like, throwing a cutter, a slider, and a curveball, um, at the time, I think, was, uh, was kind of, uh, you know, they eventually pushed him off of that, right? 
Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, I think he had our, our buddy Dan Hasty does. Uh, he's the, the announcer for the West Michigan Whitecaps, which is now the Michigan or Tigers uh, high A affiliate. And I think Shane Green was down there once for a rehab assignment. And he told uh, Dan to touch his hand and like he had two fingers that were warm and two fingers that were cold. Oh, yeah, I remember uh, that story, yeah. He had, you know, whatever oh, nerve that, thing was going on. He started to have the nerve thing, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I don't know if they attributed that to why. I feel like the cutter stayed around. I, I don't know what yeah, he ended he up getting rid of. He simplified it down. I think he's like cutter curve and he got rid of the slider. But um, but you'll see other pitchers now. Um, there's people, you know, people used to always say the changeup was a field pitch. And I get that because um, they can't find the field. But to me, the breaking ball is a real field pitch because you'll have guys who have three, four, five. Like Max Scherzer throws like maybe four breaking balls. I mean, he, I was talking to him about he had a power slider. He had like a, a cutter, uh, a power slider, a slow slider, and a curveball, and sometimes a slow curveball. I mean, you're talking about four or five breaking balls. Yeah. And the thing that was so amazing about him, I think, was that he had the touch to have that many breaking balls but also had a great changeup. I mean, that's what separates him from so many people, I think. Yeah, and I believe at the beginning of the, the presentation there, you had a video of Lance McCullers talking about all the different ways he could manipulate his, his you know, knuckle curve. Uh, it, it, one of the interesting stories coming out of Tigers camp this early this season was uh, Matt Manning, you know, one of their top pitching prospects, has apparently abandoned a slider and is now trying to throw two different curveballs. And and they think maybe working on this. He had some arm soreness last year. They thought maybe working on the slider hurt his arm. So, yeah, it's interesting to to, to look at it from that perspective. Maybe you can develop Jose, two. Jose Barrios is trying to do the same thing. He's trying to oh, throw. Uh, he has that big sweeping hook, but he wants to throw a more up down one that doesn't mm-hmm. have the sweep, and he wants to be able to sort of throw that to the um, to the lefties, you know, to the outside corner. Yeah. They'll think it's coming in, and instead it stays out. So he's trying to do that. So, um, uh, you know, I, I, I think sometimes we chase the change up so hard and that's the old school way of doing things. And instead, um, you know, like Garrett Richards, uh, just, you know, throw a slider and a cur- and a curveball. You have three pitches now. One of those you can probably throw to lefties. And uh, if you just use the slider as a surprise pitch to lefties, now you've, you've got an arsenal. You can compete. Um, and that's better than throwing a, a crappy changeup out there. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, that's, uh, yeah, that's definitely the way to go. I, yeah. And I, uh, like I said, it's really interesting and I, I, uh, congratulations on being nominated. I hope you, hope you guys pull it out. That'd be cool to get that award for sure. Um, I, that was about all the baseball topics I had. I, we did have a buddy, I want to talk to you or he wanted me to ask you about Michigan beer. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if you got any opinions on Michigan beers, uh, hop slam and things oh, like yeah, that. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I was distressed to find out recently that Hop Slam has 300 calories. Oh, oh my God, I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, it's terrible. But uh, I, I like Hop Slam. Um, I really like uh, M83. That's a good one. A, That's a good a, call, yeah. The hazy yeah. beer I had. And then um, Elephant, uh, Elephant Market, something. Elephant. I have an elephant in my head. Mm, oh, um, the I I know what you're talking about. It's like a pink and gray label, and I'm yeah. trying to blink on it. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. Um, yeah. There's, have you had the uh, Kentucky uh, Breakfast Stout yet by Founders? Yes. Yeah, that's, that's a good, good one. 
The, yeah, there's uh, a lot of there's a lot of it's a really good beer state. I think that people don't realize how good it is. Um, there's also I think like uh, uh, oh man, what's that sour company? There's a big uh, a sour company up there on the uh, western side of the state. Oh man, hmm. yeah, dude, it's uh, my my beer knowledge is falling off a little bit because I used to run a beer magazine. Oh, well, Jolly, are you thinking uh, of, uh, are you talking about Jolly Pumpkin? Is that what I'm... Yes, Jolly Pumpkin, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, really good beers up and down that state. And um, and for right here, you know, I was trying to do a beer scouting piece. We're right here. Um, Detroit is starting to uh, pick up, you know, pick up the pace. It used to be the rest of the state was where you got the best beer. But uh, I think Detroit is starting to, starting to make its mark. Yeah, definitely. If you go down, if you take I-96, if you – get off the airport and you go on to 94 to six to 96 Lansing right outside of Lansing. There's, there's, there's a couple of uh, breweries. And then of course, in Grand Rapids where I used to live, they have founders out there in West Michigan and, and Bells is in Kalamazoo, which is right down about 45 minutes away from Grand Rapids. And if you, it's, it's a fantastic area. There's also in, in like Northern the suburbs of Detroit, you have, I'm sorry, I'm sorry you also have new Holland. I was thinking about as well. But there's yeah, there's dragon there. yeah dragon mead is really good. They have the final absolution, which is a good one. The Atwater Brewery, which is in downtown Detroit, Dirty Blondes, a really good one. Uh, one of my favorites, Shorts. It makes a really it's soft parade. It's a good summer beer. It's a good one if you're if you're brewing if you're just uh out on the, just grilling. It's a really good beer. And then, and I'm not a big IPA guy per se, but I thought Founders All Day IPA is a really good one too. That's a a favorite of mine. But yeah, same thing. Now I'm like Eastern, look at all Eastern the- Market. Yes, yes. Eastern, Eastern Market makes elephant juice. That's the, oh, that's I have not had that yet. Oh, okay. I was thinking yeah, of there's, no. a, there's <laughs> that's Detroit thinking... too. I think. Yep, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Eastern Market's about five minutes away from Comerica Park, so you can literally park at Comerica Park and you could probably walk over. Night, yeah. So that's a plan, dude. Let's do it. That's oh yeah, I'm I'm down. I'm down definitely to do that. And uh, <laughs> oh. Yeah, if you don't come up, that's for sure. I, you know, my, my beer drinking days probably ended in the mid to late 90s. So I was thinking, like, Red red Elephant? There was that weird period <laughs> of the 90s with, like, Red Dog and, and oh, there were, like, Red yeah. Beers going on for a while. I don't know. But, uh, yeah, you're, you're throwing me back to high school or some early <laughs> after high school, man. Some of the beers, like the, the Bud Ice days where, you know, you're like, oh, okay, yeah, well, I have two bucks. Oh, the two for two twenty-two. <laughs> Earlier um, today, I was remembering dry beer. There was Bud Dry. I don't even know what the hell that is. Oh, everything was dry. Yeah. I don't, I, it doesn't sound. I don't want to drink anything that's dry. But oh, then, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, go on, on about that. But uh, oh, Rahelly, you, you said you had one more question. I did. Oh yeah, uh, the, the only question I had for you in terms of the expansion, and I really liked your article because we've talked about, of course, Montreal being the typical. Every I'm, I'm a big Expos fan, and all the history behind it. And Nashville, New Orleans, Las Vegas, and one of the others in Portland too. And I did not realize that Dale Murphy was I did not realize he was gonna push Portland so hard and it, it came away with I was thinking about the Kurt Russell documentary on the, the Mavericks and then the Beavers beforehand. Well, of course those were minor league teams, but it, it seems like the the over glaring fact is Charlotte, which is the currently the White Sox triple affiliate, I did not realize how much growth was going on in Charlotte. And is that something where is that going to water down the league in terms of just even in terms of prospect value or prospects and, and just talent overall? If they if another team comes out of this, I mean I think obviously expansion would water down the team, the water down the league, the talent. But um, I think it's high time to do that. And I I have a couple pieces of evidence. My one piece is 
Um, we just haven't done it in forever. Um, you know, we're going on 25 years now since the last expansion. And uh, in America, we've added like 50 million people. And we've also added markets, um, you know, baseball talent markets that we didn't have before. I think that we, you know, mine talent markets in, in uh, places like Korea, uh, Dominican Republic, Venezuela. Um, you know, we're, we're going to Curacao now. You know, we're, we're getting players from all sorts of places that I don't think we were doing as much 25 years ago. So that's one piece of evidence. The other piece of evidence I have is if you look at, like, any team's, like, sixth best reliever, dude throws, like, 96 miles an hour and has a wipeout <laughs> breaking ball. You know, I, 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 I posit that if you took that guy and plunked him in 1985, he'd be a closer for most teams. And I think that makes sense because – we had 30 teams for so long. We've had it for so long. We're just adding more people. We're adding more markets. We're adding more talent, uh, potential talent. And, um, and we've, we've met, remained uh, the same on, when it comes to teams. So I think that, um, you know, some of the things that, that um, we complain about with baseball, I think could be improved by expansion. You think about um, the strikeout rate and uh, how that relates to velocity and pitching. Um, I have a feeling that if we had two more teams, it'd be that much harder to field a team of 96-mile-an-hour relievers. And that might have something to do with, uh, with strikeout rate. So we might see a little bit of a dip in strikeout rate, which I think a lot of people would be happy with, more balls in play. And then the last thing is we're just, we just got rid of a bunch of minor league teams. This would be a really super easy way to bring those minor league teams back and associate them with a, with a new major league team. So um, for all those reasons, I think it makes sense. I know that it's more money for owners and more money for, you know, baseball. And, and, and there's certain things that it could, uh, it could do some – if you paired it with expanded playoffs, it could lead to everyone trying to win 82 games, um, which may not be great. But at the same time, uh, I think of, you know, adding some cities to this, to this mix and, and putting Montreal in there or Portland or, or Charlotte uh, I think that would be exciting for the players and be exciting for, for fans. And it would create new rivalries. They could have a Portland-Seattle rivalry um, in baseball, which I think yeah. would be healthy. Yeah. <laughs> It'd be nice for, for those uh, for Seattle for travel, too. I mean, no, not to mention, too. So I mean, it could help with travel. It could help yeah. with travel. We'd, 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 we'd redesign the entire divisional series situation because we'd have 32 teams. It would actually work uh, to have, mm -hmm. like, you know, eight divisions of four, you know? And if you did yeah. that, you could, uh, you could do a lot less travel um, and you could do a little bit less interleague play so that when you get to the World Series, it's actually like, whoa, these two teams haven't played in two years or something, you know? Yeah. Um, I, mean, I think that would be kind of exciting. Absolutely. And, and the thing is, I know that I know John Smoltz talked about this on a podcast last year about the, a trend that could come back would be pitching a contact, which there was something that I mean, growing up, that's something like strikeout rates are it, much more important, but it was something that if, if I think that expansion did happen, you could see a rise in, in that kind of pitching the contact, but I don't think it would work in this case anymore with the way that everybody's been conditioned. But I don't that's know. Just... Look at the Cubs. They're, they're making a bet. They're making a bet. The Cubs are betting on command and lower velocity and pitching the command. And the reason they're doing it is because their team got so expensive, they had to, they had to do, get cheap pitching. They had to do cheap something, and so they got cheap starting pitching. Um, and the way they got cheap starting pitching was got a bunch of guys who throw 89. So if that's the case and you expand and then there'll be more teams looking for cheap starting pitching, there might be this idea of like, oh, you know what? I can't get the guy who throws. I can't get Garrett Cole. I can't afford him. 
but I can get a Zach Davies. So let me go get some. Let me get some Zach Davies in here. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. Yeah, I, I don't. Know, I'm I'm all for expansion to, to a point. Yeah, give me two more teams. That that'll be perfect. Because uh, yeah, I remember being excited when Miami, or I guess Florida back then, and Colorado, and then Arizona, and uh, you know, my in Tampa. It was it was exciting, and it's always exciting to see the, the league expand. But I don't. Know. You know, I I really appreciate you've already spent about an hour with us. I don't want to keep you too much longer. So uh, yeah, like I said, I appreciate you spending time. Um, I I know. We touched on the the article that just came out today. Do you have anything else uh, in the pipeline, or you just want to promote that some more? Uh, yeah, you know, you can get me my pitching ranks. Um, you know, I, I took a look at the Cardinals. Um, you know, it's just uh, I'm always trying to balance. Um, you know, I do some fantasy work. I do some uh, analytics stuff. Um, then I do some like you know player development stuff. So we're looking to the QA coach and. Um, you know, trying to find uh, new ways that, that teams are trying to find an edge when it comes to game day prep. Um, so those are, those are uh, you know, I'm also going to look at which teams are, are good at developing velocity and which aren't. So those are a couple things that are on my immediate plate that are coming up. Oh, and you have a podcast too, right? The Rates and Barrels? Right, Rates and Barrels. And if, if you want to just go, give it us a, a, a go without without paying for uh, The Athletic just yet, they can listen to Rates and Barrels. It's, it's on um, – everywhere where you look for podcasts and uh, it's free. If you listen to the free version, you have to listen to some ads, uh, but you'll hear, you'll hear the kind of stuff that we're working on. It's me, Derek Van Riper and Britt Garoli, uh, who's a national writer at the athletic. And uh, we, uh, we, we walk that line between fantasy and development and just uh, having some fun talking about baseball. Awesome. Yeah. And uh, yeah, big fans of your work and uh, we appreciate you coming on again. Thanks so much. Thanks a lot guys. Have a good weekend. You too. You too.